You're listening to The Loke Show, presented by Smartling. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Loke Show. I'm your host, Adrian Cohn with Smartline. My guest today is Mikael Sepúlveda, the Global Localization Manager at King. If King doesn't ring a bell, let me jog your memory. King is the video game developer that's brought Candy Crush and other notable games to the market, and I know you've heard of Candy Crush. Miguel has also got a blog called Yo Localizo, where he shares well-informed perspectives on translation ROI, internal project management best practices, and how to assess the efficacy of your translation program. We dive into all of this and more right now on The Loke Show. Thanks for listening. Miguel, thanks so much for being on The Loke Show. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Sure. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to have you. And uh, I want to start off by reading a quote that mm-hmm. is, it's your quote. Oh, really? Global, <laughs> it, globalization, localization, internationalization, transcreation. Our industry is quite complex and we do much more than translation. Mm-hmm. This is a quote that's, that's on your, your blog Yo Localizo, tell us a little bit about, about you and how you've come to this perspective. Uh, the, the reality is that, I mean, I've been, I've been for, for many years in the industry and uh, there is still a misconception that uh, this industry is just translation. And... Uh, the the uh, irritation with uh, Google Translate and machine translation and everything is not uh, helping in that particular part. So what I'm continuously thinking is that uh, a good language professional, a good localization professional, is much more than that. Because when you take all these different uh, subcategories that you just uh, mentioned there, the globalization, the internationalization, all these, all these different services, is what you really need to have a global product. Because if you just do the known part of uh, translation, you are missing a big part about uh, how to adapt to the culture, to the specific audiences. So um, what what I was thinking with this, and I was always visualizing this like as a puzzle, but with different pieces and um, localization slash translation is just one of those. But before you could have some content, some keys, strings to translate, there are many things that should happen before. So that's why I was, I was coming up with a kind of equation and a kind of combination between all this together is when we do really have a global product. If you have only some of these services, you have something, <laughs> uh, but it's not like a full global product. So that's how, how I ended up with this train of thoughts. And you're certainly an informed person in the industry. This has been 
a, a long-standing career for you. You've been with King, the video game developer, now for over six years, and you're currently the global localization manager there. Um, tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you got into localization. As many people from, from my generation accidentally, because back in the days I started like in the mid-90s, and back in the days there was no like a formal localization career or, or, or nothing even similar to that. So basically the, the criteria back in the days, it was that you speak one language and uh, English and maybe you have some knowledge of uh, computers and then you are in the either translator path or uh, functional QA or linguistic testing. So in my case, it was with uh, linguistic testing with uh, Microsoft uh, in the mid 90s in Dublin. They were setting up the, the whole industry and they were basically looking for Spanish linguistic testers for uh, Microsoft Office and then for Windows. So that's how, how I started. I mean, I, I was not uh, a linguistic myself. I studied computer engineering, uh, but speaking a little bit of English and being native speaker and uh, being somehow knowledgeable with uh, scripting and macros and everything, that was everything that it was required back in the days. So that's how, how I started. Uh, and many people that are in the industry, that, are, that they started in the mid-90s, early 2000, is pretty much the, the same story because now there are universities, now there are resources, now you can have a certification with the Localization Institute and uh, you can have also some, some certifications like in UX and all these things. But back in the days, it was just accidental. You studied either computer engineering and you just see what's going on there or translation career and then everything is coming together. So that's how I started with, uh, with uh, Microsoft, that they were basically moving from uh, Seattle, from Redmond, all their operations to, to Europe, and they opened uh, headquarters in the, in the 90s in Dublin. And uh, yeah, I was working there. Then I was working for Lionbridge as, as a vendor, working with different uh, clients. I have very good memories of of my days working for Nokia when when I when they were well almighty and powerful and uh, working for Lionbridge to provide the the translation to all the mobile phones that they were doing back in the days and the LQA so so it's been it's 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 been like uh, accidentally at the beginning and more international more more intentional in the second part of my career, because there, there was one moment that uh, around 2007, something like that, that uh, I decided that working from a multilingual vendor is a great experience, but it's hard and it's a lot of pressure. And uh, then I wanted to try to see, okay, it must be nice to work in a final client uh, with not all the pressure of uh, deliverables and uh, working during the weekends and everything. So that's when, when I started to reconsider everything. And it came an opportunity to work for Electronic Arts. So um, uh, that was in the year 2007. And actually, that's how I started in the video games industry. Because before that, it was the side and serious side of the industry. 
but um, around 10, 12 years ago, it was more moving to, to video games in electronic arts and working for FIFA and for Speed. And it's, it's the best of all worlds because if you like video games, if you like uh, localization, and uh, it's like, wow, what else? And uh, I've been working in the video game industry since then. I have fond memories of playing FIFA with my brother and friends uh, in, the, in the 2000s. Mm. <laughs> uh, that's a great game. But uh, it's, it's amazing. Like the localization industry has changed enormously since the 90s. Um, and you, you mentioned how it was sort of accidental that you got into it. And now it's a whole different ballgame than it was before. The, the digital transformation that took place in the early 2000s, I'm sure, played a, a big role in that. Now you're at King. Tell us about King. Tell us about your responsibility set. And what does the localization program look like at King? Yeah, so, so at King, I am leading the, the globalization team. And um, what we do is, is being the glue for, for other departments. And uh, we are ensuring that uh, we are silos breakers, that uh, not everyone is working like alone in the corner. Uh, and this is related with uh, what I mentioned earlier, because uh, nowadays to, to create a... a a mobile app or a mobile game, you need to have many different functions uh, all together. And uh, it's, it's really finding the way to, to know with whom you need to talk and uh, in which moment you need to talk. That's the, that's, that's the key. So um, in, in King, what we do is that uh, we, we cover all the spectrum uh, of uh, services needed since a game is in the prototype uh, phase until it's in release in the market. And that could go from market research because, I mean, with the App Store and with the Play Store, we could uh, localize into hundreds of languages, but uh, actually that's, that's uh, not the case, yes, as you know. So just deciding, okay, what's the language coverage that we want for Candy Crush or what's the uh, market prioritization that we want for uh, Farm Heroes or Babel or all these games that we have. Actually, that's something that you need to do some research and um, to, to be able to know, should we go to Vietnam or should we go to uh, Thailand or should we go to another country? So continuously looking for untapped markets and providing data to, to the game teams is one of the things that we do very early in the, in the process. So uh, we, we are working hard to become like uh, SMEs in the, in the company and just not perceive as translators um, because actually the added value that we give is, is the expertise that we are bringing. I mean, in, in my team, it's, uh, we, we are 10 in total. We have people from different uh, nationalities, eight, eight different countries, if, if I'm not mistaken. So we have a good mix when it comes to, to give a recommendation from localization expertise, but also we have in the, in the team native uh, Japanese, uh, Korean, Chinese. So we are also able to give feedback from a cultural perspective. So we, we guide the, the game teams from the beginning until the, until the very end. And at the beginning, it's more like with the research which are the right markets, which is the right font for, for a game, which is the, 
the proactive culturalization that we could do because we have different perception of beauty in Europe or in Asia. Uh, we have different prefers of uh, game modes and type of games and all these kind of things. So there is, there is one part which is really becoming like advisors in a way and uh, giving feedback. And uh, then it's more like the execution itself, like it could be the traditional uh, localization process. And uh, we are also paying a lot of attention that the marketing campaigns and all the marketing assets that is uh, top-notch. So we do really pay a lot of attention at Keen in the quality. Um, as, as, as the company, the, the, the review is very positive of our games in, our, in the app stores, I mean, very high 4.7 average stars, so it's really good. And what we do as a company is to ensure that all the different pieces are working fine because in the end, for a player, uh, they will not say, wow, this translation is amazing. I mean, it does not work like that. Probably it will be the other way around. We only know when, when it's not good. Uh, but it's when we have the combination of one game with uh, good art, um, that visually is, is appealing, that there is no bugs from a QA perspective, functionality is good, uh, good music, good content. When you put all the different things all together, uh, is when you have like, like a great experience as, as a player. And this is what we, what we do. We, we want to ensure that our part in that whole process is, is very well done. And uh, for the marketing part and for all those assets that they have a lot of visibility, we, we ensure that the videos are really good, that the uh, uh, what's new test and the description in the game is, is really engaging, that we do uh, good work providing uh, localization for the keywords because that's something that nowadays in the App Store with so many games and apps, how how do they find us? So for for the different markets, um, so it's it's something that I I also like doing, like localization keywords depending on the market, depending on the journey of the game. Because otherwise, how do they find you in Turkey if they don't really put the right word in? So when you think about it, it's like many different things uh, here and there, and when we are able to come all together and become the glue between all these different teams and all these different services, that's when we have succeed as globalization team. So uh, my role is to ensure that all these things are somehow coming together and that it's working as smooth as possible. I love that you're positioning your team as not just the group that will execute on the translation but also the team that does the research on the markets, the, 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 the um, recommendation setting, or as you mentioned, you all are becoming your subject matter experts on the different markets. So you're recommending the, the typeface. That's awesome, by the way. Uh, the, all the cultural nuances that are going to be relevant to that market. You were just also speaking about how do you, how do you help the marketing team find customers in the different regions by localizing keywords and figuring out what terminology would be used in searches to find your games in, in different markets. Mm. That's, a, that's, a, that's really quite sophisticated and uh, it must be pretty rewarding as well to, to have 
that type of responsibility set with so many different business units in your organization. One of the things that I, I learned from your blog is that localization, it, there are a lot of complexities to it, and it is a team effort. And in a recent blog post, you, you posit how wonderful it would be if, if localization teams can use a Jedi mind trick to convince everybody to work in the way that you'd like to. But, but you came up with a more, or, or, or you, you introduced a more practical uh, system, a system that's widely known called the RACI system, uh, or RACI framework, rather, um, to enable your team and your colleagues, your the other business units that you work with, to understand that localization or globalization is a shared responsibility and that it is the most effective way to keep projects on track. Tell us about your, your use of, the, tell us what the RACI framework is, first of all, but tell us about how you're using it at, at King. The, the good thing with the RACI is that it gives uh, clarity about who does what and by when, basically. So this is really helpful when you have a, uh, cross-functional teams and uh, matrix organizations because uh, it might not be clear who has the uh, ownership of some specific parts. And if that's not clear, it's going to be a difficult project because if it's not clear who owns the content or who owns the sign-off of uh, this part or that part, it's, it's going to be a really difficult project. With the RACI, basically what you do is uh, who is responsible, who is accountable, with whom you need to transform, with whom you need to consult, because you don't need the same level of uh, granularity with all your stakeholders in, in one project. You may be easily, uh, in a game, interacting simultaneously with 50, 60 people, and uh, you don't need the same time of to, to deliver and give the same type of information to a producer than to a game designer, than to a marketing specialist. So when you get into this habit to say, okay, um, in this specific project, who, who is responsible to make a decision if there are conflicting priorities? And you just put the, the, air, the different goals, the different roles there, you put them in the air, okay, if I'm talking about this aspect of uh, game development, who has the sign-off? And you just cross-mark that one. Um, and then you, you keep iterating about this. Um, if things go in the wrong direction, who has the ownership of this? To whom we are keeping accountable? Um, because that's, that's important also to keep people accountable of their actions. So it's, it's thinking, okay, who, who, is, who has the accountability for this part of the, of the process? And uh, when, when you enter in the habit of asking yourself this from a project management perspective um, is when you start have some granularity. And then if you bring together everyone in a meeting and you say, hey, this, this, is, this is how we are going to work. Uh, this is what we are expecting from the different roles. People like that because what we don't like uh, any of us is unclear roles, unclear expectations. What's the role of this person versus this person? Um, so when you take the time to plan that carefully, and when you review that together with the rest of the stakeholders, and you say, "Hey, are you 
comfortable with this? Are you comfortable to be just in the informative? Because we believe that this is something that uh, you, you don't need to, to make a decision yourself. Then that's bringing a lot of uh, clarity. So that's, that's always good. When you, when you use this at King, what results have you experienced? Is it, is it something that you use literally every single time you get into a, a new game or, or a new development sprint? How does, how do you, when and how do you use the framework? The, it's especially useful with, uh, with uh, new games or with new teams. Um, because with the with the with the people that we've been working for a number of years, then it's it's clearer who who does what basically. Um, but when when it's like a like a new game that it's it's a starting, it's a it's a very good practice that to to, to start with uh, those kickoff meetings, and when we are starting to gather all the information and and understand what uh, we, we are doing and how we are going to work and the roadmap and, and all these things, it's, it's the perfect moment. So new games and new teams is the, is the ideal combination to, to put this uh, technique into motion. Yeah, that makes sense. I, 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 I'm particularly interested in the utilization of this framework. I actually have used it a few times myself for internal projects, like when we've scheduled or organized our, our global conference, or if we're trying to build a series of presentations internally that will be used for external purposes. We typically use this framework to delineate responsibilities. I found it to be super helpful. Yeah. One of the, the things that I, I feel that you also articulate on your blog quite eloquently, and I'd love to dive into in more detail with you, is how globalization teams can think about their return on investment. That's sort of like the broad topic here. But you, you sort of introduced this topic on your blog first by talking about translation quality and how translation quality metrics are are typically what localization teams look at to start evaluating the efficacy of their work. Why are quality metrics not always as useful as they may appear on the surface slide? I think that uh, we are looking, traditionally localization teams and the language specialists, we are looking at from a very narrow perspective because we tend to focus on like linguistic issues or or number of typos uh, misspelling or things like this um, which which is not good to have but in the end what it does really matter is like the um, in, in in the case of Kim the player experience and uh, the player experience it's it's something that that we need to find a different way to to measure that because you could have one text that from a linguistic perspective it's totally okay, but that is not engaging. And maybe you have all the grammar rules okay, and maybe you have all the punctuations and everything there. Um, but I think that uh, 
one one of the problems there is that we just keep ourselves like like in this uh, model of of this this has no title, and we don't generally think about um, is this content really engaging? Are we transmitting like feelings and, and emotions? And traditionally, this is not something that a localization team has measured. I mean, we, we have all the KPIs that you might imagine about uh, delivery on time and uh, number of errors per number of words, all these metrics, the typical ones. But at the end of the day, uh, for, for all the companies now, what is important is the uh, customer feedback, the player experience. So I believe that what is important is to find a way to capture that to capture what we do, what we translate, actually, how is that perceived by, by a final user, by a final player? Because, I mean, to be honest, I'm taking for granted that uh, the translators in normal circumstances, they, they don't make many mistakes, uh, to, to be honest. I mean, especially we, we are making an effort to provide them the context of what they need to do. So, when you are working with uh, translators for a number of years and you provide them localization kits, reference material, context, they are quite, quite, quite reliable and they don't make many mistakes. So then the uh, measurement of error rate, I don't really find it that useful. It's something we have to do, yeah. But actually the, the real metric is, is this content something that is engaging the, the players? and I believe that when we are able to find this kind of metrics, it's when we are having a different and a better discussion with the, with the product teams. Because for a product team, they don't really care either about uh, the, the linguistic accuracy of Italian. What they would like to know is how we are doing in Italy. Are they enjoying what we are doing there? So we need to keep working to somehow come together from our traditional very nerd metrics <laughs> to the uh, product metrics. Yeah, I think that that, that that is an interesting way to, to think about translation because while those, those, those detailed analytics are interesting, mm. they really aren't what make the, 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 the purpose of your business unit successful. It, it, it may determine the failure of a, of a business unit. If you're not hitting those marks, then clearly there's something wrong with process and uh, maybe vendor, whatever. Um, but the, the things that actually matter are, are the customers buying your product? Are they using your product? Mm-hmm. Are they happy using your product? Um, if, you're, if you're able to tick those boxes, then then it's easy to recognize that the efficacy of the globalization team, translation team, is on track. And you talk a little bit about, in your, in your blog, the importance of a single unifying metric, which is customer satisfaction. How do you approach measuring customer satisfaction at King, and what can we learn from you uh, as it relates to measuring customer satisfaction for localization? Actually, that's that's a project we 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 are working as as we talk because that's that's an area that we want to to go deeper. 
I mean, at King, the player support team is is quite 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 pro. They are really good in the in the relationship with the with the players. Um, and what we are trying to to establish there also is to get uh, sentiment feedback. So this is something that uh, we are discussing with with the teams uh, to to get feedback from from the international players because we have more research and more feedback for the English-speaking players, a lot of focus in the States. And uh, what we are trying to do and to build now is a model that we get also some feedback from the, from the international players and even asking them questions about the, the, the localization quality or, or even questions around, uh, will you play this game if it's not in your native language? Because when you go into those type of questions, is when you really, even if you don't have like an error model, uh, like a very solid one, if you have some way to show to the business to say, hey, in, in Japan, uh, eight out of 10 people said that if the game is not in Japanese, they will not play the game. I mean, that, that's like an 80%. You don't really need to go to the ROI to, to the details if you don't want to, because those uh, results are, are are quite powerful by, by itself. So it's, it's getting this this feedback from the from the players. It's also getting feedback from the internal customers. Something that we pay a lot of attention at Keen is the the surveys for our internal stakeholders. So every quarter we run a survey with the different teams that we are working, and we ask them how happy they are with our services and um, what recommendations they have for us, or which new services they would like to see that we offer. So we, we, we do that uh, every, every quarter and we use that to monitor our performance and how the others are perceiving us. And, um, and, and the combination of those both things is what I believe it's telling you if you are doing a good job. Because if the um, stars review in the App Store, in the Play Store, it's, it's, it's okay. If you have um, good feedback from this sentiment analysis, and if you have good feedback from your internal stakeholders, then things are moving into the right direction, in my opinion. In the past, have, have you received feedback from internal stakeholders that, that con- concerned you and that you had to address to improve on the way that your team was working with other teams? We have had some feedback to... Uh, go deeper and explain more and better all this area of uh, internationalization and it's 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 one of the areas more more unknown and for many people they don't really know what they have to do to mm. to internationalize the code so those are some some comments that we have received hey it would be great if you can go deeper in this area or if you could uh, run a presentation about this about that or if you could help with uh, market research of some specific uh, regions of the world, or if it makes sense to go to India, or if we are fine with English in India. So those are the type of, um, in the older comments of the survey, that sometimes we, we get feedback like this. And for us, it's, it's very good to have it, because actually it's, it's much easier. We just hear what they would like, and then we see how we can provide that. So, so I like the, the internal service. It's, it's a good model, in my opinion. Yeah, I love that. And 
I, I think I could actually learn from that myself at SmartLine. There's, there's plenty I'm sure we could be doing to listen more to uh, different teams at the company. What, what sort of experiences have you had at King where you walked away and you're like, wow, we just, we completely killed it. Like this was a good result. What, what are you most proud of? I guess is the question of your work at King. From from a processes perspective, I'm proud that uh, we are pushing localization slash globalization activities that we push to the left. Because traditionally, uh, when you start like in the game development process, you would have like the prototyping. Well, it's, it's the same for for the for the digital product. So you would have the ideation and the brainstorming and the prototyping and then some play test and then maybe some soft launch in some markets. And usually that's when localization teams uh, are involved, like, like when you start there, which is more or less like in the middle. If you take like the axis, it would be like in the middle from, from ideation and creation to the release. And uh, we used to be more like in the middle uh, a few years ago. Um, and this is exactly the, the type of thinking about our services as an afterthought. Uh, they do something, and when they need translation, they will send it to, to someone else. And uh, we've been working to push there and being involved in the, in the co-creation phase and uh, tell them, hey, this is how we can help you in this specific area and not being perceived as a kind of internal service provider because that's, uh, that was the, the perception. So I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to position ourselves and saw the value and saw the, the impact if we are engaging with our stakeholders much earlier. So that, that's, that's nice. I, I like that. I think that's a great result. Um, it's, 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 it's also, when we started this conversation, you were speaking a lot about how you've developed the team to be more than just an execution group for a translation. You really are the, the, the thought leader inside the company on how products may or may not succeed in different markets and what needs to be done to achieve those goals. Did you have to, did you, when you hired people to work on your team, did you have to look at like different skill sets for that? Or have you developed skill sets in people you work with so that they have that expertise and they are um, not just translation or linguistic experts? Mm. One, one of the best things of Keen is that they do really invest a lot of uh, on us in education. And uh, we have access to many resources, uh, many books, many workshops, many opportunities to, to grow certifications. If they are useful, we, we are also covered. So uh, every year we have our own internal PDP, personal development plan, which is something that we do together with our manager or with our teams. And we say, hey, what would you like as individual grow? And you come up with a with a first iteration with that, and then you try to see and align that with the with the needs of the team and the need of the company. 
Um, so a lot of the skills that, uh, that we are getting now, it's uh, polishing because in the last couple of years, we didn't hire anyone. And what we are doing is continuously evolve our team and uh, try to expand our skills more horizontally. And in the end, we, we know by now how to do uh, localization. So it's more around the, the other areas. And um, we, we get keen support for that. So when we identify a, a scale that we are missing, and we believe that that's something that we, we should pay attention, um, we get the budget for that. So it's, it's amazing on, on that front. Keen uh, is really, really, really helping us. And it's, it's, it's super useful because then we can... One, one good example of something that is getting a lot of traction uh, in, in the world. It's everything UX related. Now there are many areas related with uh, UX, either with the design, either with UX writer, either with uh, UX design for international audiences. Um, so for many of us, maybe we have done some kind of UX things, but we don't really know, or, or, or it was named in a different way. Because during all my life, the uh, the the, the, the content has been brightened, but we didn't know that that was called like a UX writer. And we didn't know what's the difference between a content creator and a UX writer. And we don't know how a UX writer could impact the, the copy for the international markets. So this is an area that myself, I'm, I'm also investing time there to, to get more knowledgeable in the UX part. Because that's that's something that that it's important. So, so yeah, we we when we see a need and when we see an opportunity, and now we are identifying the opportunity of investing in UX and thinking, okay, UX for English, but then how we are going to bring UX design of the different mockups, the different pop-ups, how we are going to translate this into the the, the, the international uh, experience. So. I think that's that's a good example of something that it's is working fine in the way that we as internal team we see a need. We also recognize hey, we are not really strong in that area, but in the end it's not that 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 different from localization. It's just a different approach, but everything is related with player experience and how the, the players are perceiving a game from different cultures. So there is a lot of common things with the with the localization industry, and and that's how we work. Uh, identify a need and then create a PDP and then go for it for for getting more knowledgeable um, in those areas. That's awesome, and I'm sure your team is super appreciative of that as well. Because the more skills you can add to your toolbox, the the more productive you can be and the more gratifying your day-to-day experiences. So that's really cool. When you, when you talk, Miguel, with your colleagues about the value of translation, we were sort of hovering around this a few minutes ago and we were talking about CSAT and the metrics that you look at. You, you, you also talk in your blog about how translation ROI is really not simple. And that they're that that we that you are still trying to crack the code on this despite many efforts. Um, is ROI important for translation? 
I, I think it's, it's not the right question to answer for a localization team because there are so many variables that they are affecting that in the end um, it's, it's, the, it's, it's putting every localization professional trained to prove that into a very difficult situation because it's not a formula. I mean, it's not that if you invest this, you get that. It's, it's, it's not because it's related with the, uh, with the player experience and uh, that player experience, it's very, very preferential and subjective. So it's more the question around uh, is player experience in this market important for this company? Yes or no? Because in the end, uh, for most of the teams, if you compare the cost of localization with the cost of development, it's really small. I mean, really, really, really small. So it's going to be always positive from that angle. I mean, if you compare one mobile app or one game in one sprint, maybe you have 300 words. You know that translating 300 words is super cheap compared with the, everything that is required to create a digital product. So it's going to be positive always. Um, so, but, but the question is, uh, can we succeed in this market without having localization? And is localization really enabling the business in that region of the world? Because if you want to target uh, one country, um, I mean, even in traditional industries, I think that uh, you would not send salespeople to sell something to one country that they don't speak the language. That's, that's not done. So if you want to sell in Spain, you would not send people that they don't speak Span uh, Spanish. And you would not send people to a factory or to sell services if they don't speak this, the, the language. It, it does not work. Uh, I don't know why in, the, in this uh, digital world it's, it's like a different approach because it is not like that. If you are selling pharmaceutical, you have to speak German if you go to Munich to sell something as simple as that. And if you don't do it, you, you don't make business. And in, in our industry, there is a perception in, in web, in, in digital products, mobile, that, uh, well, it might be a nice to have. And the reality is that it's not a, a nice to have. I mean, it's true that just, if you just only translate and you don't do anything else, like no marketing and no support, I mean, it will not work. It's, it's, not, it's not a miracle. But the absence of localization is what it's going to open or close the, the doors. So that's why I believe it's not really more like into the ROI because there are many variables and it's a difficult uh, conversation. But it's more around, hey, uh, if in the Middle East, the English proficiency of of the country in Saudi Arabia, if it's very low, why we don't translate into Arabic? They are going to understand it. So we are going to help to, to, to the company to be in a better position to, to make money. So I prefer to have this kind of uh, conversations rather to say the price per word, the price of LKI hour, because that's 
I, I, I don't like that. I, in the end, I think that is just having a bias vision of the, of the industry. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's also interesting because you, you write about how product teams have a lot of interesting metrics like retention rate, churn rate, active users, sessions. All of these could actually be looked at from the lens of translation as well to get an understanding for whether or not the, the, the investment in a language is, is paying off. I mean, let's say you translated a game into French and you were seeing that those French users were continuing to use the product. You'd be able to, to say that the, the translations are effective. Uh, whereas if those French users started to drop off the product, maybe you'd, you'd have a, and, and other languages had users that were maintaining the service you might have a, a way to look at and evaluate whether or not it's it's a successful investment. Yeah, and Adrian, on top of what you said, I think that uh, another measurement very good to have is the A-B test, and that's my favorite one, much, much better than ROI, because ROI is only telling one side of the, of, of the story. But if you say, hey, let's launch two products, one is localized, and the other one is in English, and you ensure that it has the same functionality, and you give them the same timeline to, to test, that's super powerful, because then the differences is the added value of localization. So it does not really match that much if, we are, if I'm investing one, if I'm getting 100. I don't think that's that's important. That's my my opinion. But if you have the results of A and the results of B, and you see that there is a, a big difference, and in all the A/B tests I've done during my career, the localized version has performed better, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the country, depending on the type of product. But I didn't see any single situation that we did one A/B test and the English was outperforming the, the local. And those A-B tests, they are super powerful. And um, it's a shame that they are so difficult to run because it requires time and it requires the commitment of a development team to ensure, hey, we are going to have the same features in, the, in the, these builds. We are going to segment users. Uh, so we distribute the A to this group of users and the B to this group of users. So it, it requires a lot of internal coordination. But when that's done, it's super effective because that's giving you really the added value of what we do. How long do you typically run an A-B test for? What's your ideal time frame? Is it two weeks? Is it a month? Um, the longer, the better. Because what, what it's important is to avoid the, the false positives or the bias conclusions. If you do it one or two weeks, maybe you don't have have a, a, a good look of the trend. Um, so if you can afford four weeks, it, that's good. If you can afford six weeks, that's even better because there are spikes and valleys and you, you need to normalize the, the results. So it does really depend on the team, but the longer, the better to avoid false positives and to avoid uh, coming to conclusions super early. <laughs> Miguel, I feel like I've learned so much from you, and um, I really appreciate that you joined the show today. We're going to make sure that in the comments, people, you've you got to go and check out Miguel's blog, Joe Localiso. Uh, we'll leave the, the URL in the description so you can find it. But Miguel, 
keep up the amazing work. Keep on writing because we're learning so much from you in that channel. And uh, I can't wait to see what, what you do next at King. Thank you so much, Adrian. It was very nice. I, I really hope that this can be useful for the community. And yeah, we need uh, new blood and new localizers. So let's keep doing it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Miguel as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, check out his blog, yolocaliso.com. That's Y-A-L-O-C-O-L-I-Z-O.com. Subscribe to his newsletter. You will not be disappointed. And hey, if you liked this episode of The Loke Show, hit the subscribe button so the next episode will be waiting for you. If you loved the podcast, it would make my day if you left a review. Five-star reviews means more listeners, and more listeners means we'll continue attracting amazing guests to the show. If you're not ready to give a five-star review, send me an email, lokeshow at smartling.com. I'd love to hear your feedback. Or give the next episode a shot. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.